um, thoughtful, that your spirit would help us to absorb the word, that we'd receive it for what it is, the word of the Lord. You'd be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to look at uh, Nehemiah 7, really starting verse 4 through verse 13. But before we jump into that passage, because it's been a few weeks, let me ask you guys um, if you remember, assuming you remember, what is it that we, we've been saying about Ezra and Nehemiah? These are people who've returned from exile. Remember the exile under Babylon and Assyria? The, namely, we're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah, exiled under Babylon, who has returned. And they've returned to build, rebuild the temple. They've returned to rebuild the wall. And they've been doing that work. Um, what's the problem? People are still wicked. So they can rebuild the, the structures, if you will, the externals. The problem is in their heart, right? And you're going to see that. And you see that incidentally throughout Scripture. So, you know, when Noah gets off the ark, it's like, well, the, the world has been cleansed in judgment, but the hearts of his family are st is still wicked, right? And they're still sinful, so this is a constant thing you're going to see. This is what Jesus is going to, um, if you will, correct the Pharisees and Sadducees on, who, who's, who seem to think that an external law-keeping is, is sufficient, right? And Jesus is going to come in and say, have, you have never gotten, the, gotten it, have you? <laughs> right? Um, it's always, always, I've never just wanted your lips to speak rightly about me. Your hearts can't be far from me. You need to, your hearts need to be changed, right? Um, those who believe, I, wa I want to state this. Those who read the Old Testament or the New Testament, i.e. the Bible, as if the Pharisees were getting the story right, inevitably become legalists. What do I mean by that? There are a lot of people in our day who read the Old Testament as if, as if the whole of the people and the Old Testament are under the covenant of works. Right? So the whole of the people of the Old Testament, C-O-W, um, what does that mean? That the principle of life is law-keeping. It's I get to the Lord by, by this law-keeping in some way. Um, uh, covenant of works, do this and live. You guys tracking with me so far? The covenant that Adam was under in the garden, right? Um, do this and live. People say, how do you know it's a covenant? There's a lot of reasons for that. But, but there, the covenant that Adam's in the garden, do this and live. If you read the whole Old Testament as if all of those people remain under the covenant of works, the, the do this and live principle, then you end up inevitably becoming a somewhat legalistic person. Because in some ways, you're going to begin to put the new covenant people under the covenant of works as well. It's just going to keep tracking, folks. Because you're going to read passages and not know what to do with them. You're going to keep saying that what, what comes first is, I bring myself to God, and then he's gracious to me. Right? He's kind to me. He rewards me. Um, you're just going to live in that sort of world. And, and you're going to start reading all of the external things incorrectly. So circumcision, circumcision becomes a kind of covenant of works. So you keep, you're circumcised, and if you're not, then you get cut off, and it's some kind of evidence of covenant of works. Here's the problem with that. That's not what the Bible says about circumcision. It says that it's actually... Um, picturing, signing promises. What's supposed to happen with a man who's circumcised? What also needs to happen or else he's damned? Circumcision of the heart. The externals were never good enough. So a lot of people want to come in and say, well, the Jews in the New Testament were, they were circumcised in the foreskin of the flesh. They, they were going to the temple, this physical building, they were participating in the physical sacrifices, bringing clean animals, right, for the sacrificial system. They were coming to the physical priests to do the work. Um, that was all good. Um, and if it's accompanied by an internal heart religion, it is good. The problem was it wasn't. It wasn't. 
And uh, we need to be really clear about that because we tend to put ourselves in the same kind of a place. We don't understand there has to be a transformation of the heart that can only be done by the grace of God. And then the law keeping, if you will, comes from that. That's why obligations in scripture are always um, posed as blessings. If you're in right relation to the Lord, then the obligations he gives you are blessings. It's one of the things I'm gonna have to hit on on this Sunday in Genesis 9. You're, you're going to see it. Bless, you, you see it in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Say, so it's a blessing to be a law keeper. Yes, right? So you just have to start going through scripture. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, and God blessed them and said what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Isn't that a command? Yeah, but it's called a blessing. Right? Later, God is going to bless Noah. He's going to bless him, and the, the, thing, the blessing he's going to receive is a command. It's an obligation. The beginning of Abraham's covenant. What's the first word to Abraham? I'm going to bless you? Actually, it's not. What's the first word? Huh? Leave. Go from this place and go to this land and do commanded to obey. And that obedience is then called a blessing. Right? And you're going to see that throughout Scripture. If you're rightly related to the Lord, then, then commands are blessings. Right? Commands are blessings. The people didn't get that. They thought that by keeping the command, they could be rightly related to the Lord. And when you think by keeping the command, you can be rightly related to the Lord, then the command is no longer a blessing, but a curse or a burden. You guys understand the distinction there? That's why Jesus can say, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for my burden is light, right? In other words, it's not, the commands of God are not burdensome if you're rightly related to the Lord. They're a blessing. But if you're incorrect or wrongly related to the Lord and you think you're gonna be rightly related to the Lord by keeping commands, those commands become burdensome and a curse to you. They condemn you. You guys understand the distinction there? You have to understand that. Adam is rightly related to the Lord in the garden. That's why the commands can be a blessing to him. Once he falls into sin, he's no longer rightly related to the Lord. He's under the curse. He needs a substitutionary atonement, a savior, someone to rightly relate him to the Lord so God's commands can again be to him a blessing. And God promises one, and he believes. Are you guys tracking with me so far? The Jews in Israel, when they come into the, they, they return to the land, they still seem to, even as they talk about God's law, they still seem to see it as this kind of external matter through which they can become rightly related to the Lord um, so that it's kind of a burden for them and a, and a curse and they just wander off into more sin. They don't ever see it rightly. So they're very concerned about the external man because by the way, when you try to rightly relate yourself to the Lord by covenant commands, when you think that's what they're doing, what do you do? Inevitably, you degrade the, you degrade the difficulty of the commands so they can be just externally kept or else you have no hope. That's, that's where you end up going, right? That's how you think of related to the Lord. You're going to devalue how hard the commands are. Right? You're just going to because you cannot keep the bar way up here. Because so, here's the thing. I'll be rightly related to the Lord by keeping his commands. Okay, here you go. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Keep that one. <laughs> like, uh, I'm damned. Right? It's a curse. Well, what he means is just go to church on Sundays, go to my grace group, give my tithe, um, vote Republican, be generally moral, stay committed to my wife. That's what he means, right? And as long as I don't cuss, don't chew, don't go with the girls who do, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, you're, you're looking at this. That's, that's what it means. And, and that's what you start lowering it. And I do all those things, so I'm fine with God. All these I've kept from my youth is exactly right. And they, they, 
That's where you're going to have to go. If you do not understand that actually first you have to be rightly related to God and you can't rightly relate yourself to him post-fall. You have to have a mediator who does that. After the fall of man, no one can be rightly related to God except for a mediator. And then once you do have a mediator, then the obligations become blessings. You guys understand that? And, and these people are still missing it. They're going to miss it right into the new covenant. They're going to keep on missing it. So, um, and so they're going to keep on participating in a kind of external obedience with no real heart change. Build a wall, build a city, do the ceremonies, but don't really have a change of heart. I don't mean every single individual in Israel, by the way. There are lots of people who were, were walking with the Lord, Ezra and Nehemiah, for example. But I do mean that the mass of them, the bulk of them, were not walking with the Lord the way they should. All right, so let's look there then at Ezra 7 and carry it on through. Um, I just want to set this up. The people in the city return and are enrolled with the focus on temple servants and priests, etc. So look at verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. People in it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So they're, they're just returning, and so you're, you're going to get an enrollment of them. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. Now he's going to list all the people who had come up at the first, but they're, they're not really settling in the city, right? People had come up at the first, and he's going to number them all. And there's a real focus on the priests, the temple servants, the Levites, for example. Um, in verse 7, he says, the number of the men of people of Israel, and then he starts listing all these families. Go down to verse 39. The priests, verse 39, the sons of Jedidiah, so we're going to list them. Verse 43, the Levites, the son of Jeshua, is going to list them. Verse 46, the temple servants, the sons of Zia, and he's going to list them. And then verse 57, the sons of Solomon's servants. Notice the summary in verse 60, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon were 392. Um, there's, there's a continual emphasis here. Now, there are some folks who came up who are not Jews, who wanted to be enrolled, but they were excluded um, from the priesthood. They, they were un, as unclean, or they weren't at least proper for the priesthood. They come in, they're excluded. Um, now look at verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of, ho of whom there were 7,337. And now he's going to list the singers again, and the horses and mules and camels and donkeys, etc. And the fathers, heads of the fathers' houses are giving. Go down to verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel, all Israel lived in their land, or excuse me, their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So you, you notice all the people are there, but what's the focus on? Yeah, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants. It's on that. Why is the focus continually there? Worship. Worship. What's the purpose of man? Worship. What's Israel brought back to the land to do? Worship. Um, so look with me at chapter 8. We're going to look at the people entering a covenant renewal ceremony. So they're going to... They're going to enter a covenant renewal ceremony and dedicate, dedicate um, the rebuilt city. Now, as we look here, I want you to notice a few elements, particularly as we look at Nehemiah 9. We're going to read Nehemiah 8 and 9. We'll probably skip through some elements of 10, 11, and 12 briefly, and then we'll look again at Nehemiah 13. And the reason is, is that Nehemiah 8 through... 12 are going to make the people look pretty good, right? As you read them, so you're like, okay, they're getting it. Um, and then you're going to get to Nehemiah 13 and find out, oh, they're not really getting it. Okay, so um, 
But let's, let's look here at Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the, the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So here are the people attentive to the book of the law. This is great. And half the day. I mean, it's being read half the day. Now, this is not their normal worship practice. They didn't normally just start out and read the Bible to the people half of a day. All right. This is a covenant renewal ceremony, so make sure you put it in its proper perspective. This isn't like, well, every time they got together on the Sabbath, they read the Bible half the day. It's, it's not what they did. All right, so, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him um, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadadnah, it's a hard one, um, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So he's, he's been platformed, if you will, above them so that they're below the word. The people stood and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You get another list of people. Now notice what these people do. Look at the end of verse 7. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here's what you have. You have a sort of a, a group of assigned Bible teachers. And what are they doing? Reading the law clearly and then explaining it to people, giving the sense of it to them. Um, that is just the pattern you see through Scripture. That's what the men set apart to teach the word is supposed to do. Read the book and give the sense of it. It doesn't say they read the book and then put it down and told some nice stories, right? They read the book and they explained it so the people understood the book. Not the theme of the pastor's sermon that day, but so they understood the book. You guys understand the distinction there? It isn't unimportant. You're, you know, these are Bible teaching men. So notice it goes on. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord, or of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that word declared to them. So they, um, they then are uh, participating in the Feast of Booths. You know, they're, so they're living in the tents like they were at one point in time. Um, and then we have this confession. So look at chapter nine. So we understand what's happening. The word's being read to them. It's being explained to them. They're weeping. Why do you think they're weeping at this scene, by the way? They're realizing how short they've fallen of it right? Oh my, you know, the more you read and understand the Bible, the more you understand your problem, right? And he's saying, no, the Lord is renewing the covenant with you. Don't weep. You need to rejoice. Um, so we're going to read about this chapter nine. Look there. Now on the 24th day of this month, the month of the Feast of Booths, the people of Israel were assembled fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now, why, why do they have sackcloth and earth on their heads? 
Fasting and sackcloth and earth on their heads. What does that communicate to you? There's a kind of uh, repentance and mourning that's happening here, right? Um, and the Israelites separate themselves from all foreigners. It's like, yes, you're doing what you're supposed to do. Not because, um, you guys know in the last, last few years, they've, they've had a term for this. People want to separate themselves from the foreigners. They've been throwing around politically. Xenophobia. Yeah, they're, they aren't xenophobic, right? They aren't xenophobic. They're, they're, they're commanded to stay away from the foreigners because they kept giving into their idol war, worship. Not, they're not participating in xenophobia. So just to be clear, um, this is not a command and a commendation of racism or something like that. It's, um, all right. So um, the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. That's a lot of sin to confess. Um, but if you start trying to list all your sin, if you really dig down there and start listing it all, you're going to end up in a Luther moment. Do you guys know what I mean by a Luther moment? What do I mean by that? He took hours, and then he would leave his confessional booth, Luther would, because he was constantly trying to figure out what all of it was, because he thought he needed to get it all expunged if he's going to get back in God's good graces. Be in the confessional booth forever, and, the, and his father confessor, he would say to him, like, just go back to your room, it's enough, right? And he would leave, and on his way back, he would think of more things to confess and come right back, because he couldn't stop thinking of other sins, right? He did not understand the gospel at that point in time. He came to understand it, but um, this, this seems like almost like they're having that kind of a moment. They've got a lot of sin to confess, but it gets put to an end, so notice what happens. Um, they, on the, st on the stairs of the Levites stood Joshua, Bonnie, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, it looks like bunny, doesn't it? Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites um, said, we just skip all their names, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now notice, here comes the sermon that's going to come from these men. You are the Lord. You alone, you made heaven, the heaven of heaven, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's on them, the sea and all that is in them. Okay, now let me stop for a second. What, what in this sermon or this praise did they just begin by um, stating or teaching? What, what chapter did they just cover? They just covered Genesis 1, didn't they? Right? Um, you're the God who created everything. Now notice the next phrase. Um, and you preserve all of them. Notice what comes with creation. So he, you are God, the creator of all things. You are the one who preserves all things. You're the one who carries it all forward. And, and the host of heaven, what? Worships you. You are the God to be worshipped. So n notice their starting point. You are the creator. You are the preserver of all things, okay, we call it providence, okay, and, and um, you, you are to be worshipped, right, you're the one whom the host of heaven worships, in other words, the host of heaven are those whole creatures that are holy, they worship you, right, okay, now, go on, again, the phrase, you are the Lord, notice that, that's the first one, you are the Lord, or Yahweh, you alone, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made, and made with him the covenant to give his off, to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. What did he discover now? What did they discover? Huh? Genesis 12 and following right? They just covered it all. Boom. There you go. So now you're grounding. This is the God who is the creator, who is the preserver of all things, 
who is to be worshipped. He alone is the Lord, and he's the one who called out Abraham and made a covenant with him. And who's the one who've kept, who's kept the covenant? And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So now they're talking about the righteousness of God. Why, why does the keeping of God's promise indicate, um, or why, sorry, maybe let's put it this way. Why is his righteousness the ground of his keeping of the promise? Why, does, why, why say, what, you know, you kept your promise for you are righteous? Because why? Yeah, yeah. So if he didn't keep his promise, would he be righteous? No, he would be unjust, right? Um, he would be um, not, not right, not good, not godly, if you will, right? He would be, not, he would be ungodlike if he failed to keep his promise. You are righteous. Now go, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted ignorantly against, or excuse me, arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. By the way, at this point, we're, we're, we're moving through Exodus, right? And we're moving from Exodus all the way through what? Exodus 9, where God says, I'm going to make a name for myself among all the nations, right? Okay? As is they, verse 11, and you divided the sea before them. Now you're in Exodus 14. So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. Um, now you're at Exodus 19. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws. Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23. Good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. That brings you to Exodus 31. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from the, uh, for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So you're, you're, you've moved through Exodus and now into Numbers. Are you guys tracking? But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Right? They wanted to go back to Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Okay, um, he's... he's in some sense, pulling things from Exodus and Numbers, but really mostly in Exodus here, okay? And this quote comes from where? Where does this particular quote from, come from? Exodus 34. Exodus 34, exactly. This is that big statement when the Lord appears to Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, right? And here he's quoting from it. Um, again, you saved these people. They were disobedient, wicked, why, why is it that they continue not to go on without being destroyed? Because? Because you're a forgiving, gracious God, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. You don't forsake your people. Boom. So now look at the next phrase. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. Okay, it's, it's a fascinating statement. Even when they did this, you guys remember the scene. Exodus 19 to 24, you kind of have the covenant renewal in Exodus. In Exodus 24, Moses goes up on the mountain. Remember, he, he tells them about the covenant and um, Moses and Aaron and uh, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 go up there to have this kind of covenant meal with the Lord. It's, 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 it's a remarkable scene. But just before they go up to that covenant meal, they take the blood of the animals, remember, and the people say, all that, that's in the, 
the law, we will do. All that God has commanded, we will do. Throw some of the blood on the people and some on the altar, right? And they repeat over and over. You see it in Exodus 19, you see it in Exodus 24. We're going to do everything God has commanded. We're going to do everything God has commanded. So then the 70 elders, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, come down from the mountain. Moses stays up there while God gives him the Ten Commandments on stone. That's the end of Exodus 24. Exodus 32, you pick the story up again. Exodus 32, you pick the story up again. And I'm driving at a point here. Exodus 32, you pick the story up again, and you realize that as soon as Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the, and the 70 elders come down the mountain, as soon as they come down the mountain, they're like, Moses isn't here. What's taking him so long? Hey, let's build a golden calf and worship it. Right? Call it Yahweh and basically worship a false god. Note what's happening there. It's literally right after all that God has commanded, we will do. What's the first command? You shall have no other gods before me. What's the second command? You shall not make a graven image. What's the first thing they do? Oh, we'll keep all the commands. Oh, Moses is taking a little bit longer than we expected. Let's make a golden calf and worship it, right? Right there, they immediately turn there. Um, it's a wicked, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. What's between those, those stories, though? Exodus 32 and Exodus 24. What's between, what, something's stuck right in the middle of that history. It's like all of a sudden you get a pause from that history, and you get all these chapters covering what? The construction of the tabernacle, the setting apart of the priests, and the sacrifices, why? Why put all that between we'll keep the commands of the covenant and their disobedience? Because they won't keep them, and they need a means for the forgiveness of sins, right? Um, it's not unintentional that it's just broken up that way. What you could have had is just the instructions and then the actual building of the tabernacle. Moses intentionally arranges it this way. And then in the middle of that passage, he tries to intercede for them. He does intercede for them. He tries to offer himself, but he, he's, that offering is rejected. Um, and then the Lord, he appears to him, you guys remember, and says this to him. This is who he is. Um, and they're being reminded, this is who God is. He's got to create everything. He alone is the Lord. He's the one who created everything. He's the one who preserves everything. Um, he is the one who is to be worshipped. He is the Lord. He's the one who called out Abraham. And he's the one who kept the promises to Abraham, made a covenant with him and kept him. He's the Lord. He's the one who saw us in Egypt in slavery and brought us out of Egypt as he promised he would and stayed with us and parted the Red Sea and went to Mount Sinai with us. And even when we, in the face of all of that, kept committing adultery, I mean, idolatry or spiritual adultery, he was still gracious to us. Even in the midst of all that. All right, verse um, 18, we'll look there again and we'll keep reading. Um, Even when, when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Notice what a gracious God we have. And keep this in mind, people who want to say that these people in Israel are under a covenant of works where they're going to earn their place with God are clearly misreading the Mosaic covenant. If they were under a covenant of works where they earn their relationship to God, what would happen to them upon the golden calf? They would all be dead, all of them, not mercy and grace, right? Um, Verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. You're going to Joshua now. You guys following that? Okay. Um, he doesn't even get into their wickedness in the wilderness, right? Which is, which is bad, though God continues to bless them. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner 
So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of the heavens. Now, of heaven. You guys remember that's part of the Abrahamic promise, right? And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. Again, part of the Abrahamic promise. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Right, so now we're in the, we're in the book of Joshua. All is well. All is well, right? Okay, let's go on. <laughs> it's like, this is going to see the repeated problem. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercy, mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. What book are we in, by the way? Judges. Good. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules which if, if a person does them he shall live by them and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets yet they would not give ear Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. What are we talking about now? The exile. The exile. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we're in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant and writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the names, on the seal are the names of, and then he goes on to list the seal names. Verse 28, the rest of the people, of chapter 10, sorry, chapter 10, verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, a servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, um, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not. Now notice their, so you guys understand what's happening here. They're reviewing their covenant history. Essentially, you're the creator, you're God alone, the creator of all things, the preserver of all things, the one who is to be worshipped and is worshipped by the host of heaven. You are the one who covenanted with Abraham and you kept that covenant. You're the one who brought us out of Egypt and slavery. And no matter how wicked we were, 
You're the one who was gracious and kind to us. That doesn't mean, by the way, that people never fell. You know, if Moses comes out, he cuts down some people. You guys remember that? Okay. But um, there are people who are repenting and people who are not. Right? Um, you're the God who brings us out, uh, brought us out. You're the God who stayed with us through the wilderness, through all these journeys that we were wicked. You're the one who brought us into the land and gave us all good things. We rejoiced in you, but we were stiff-necked and hard-hearted, and we returned to sin again. You're the one who sent saviors or judges, and every time they came, um, we were, I mean, every time we were under a foreign nation, we, we cried out, you send a savior or a judge. They saved us. We had rest, and then we turned back to wickedness again, <laughs> and over and over and over the problem goes, right? You're the one who sent us. We were in the land. We set up our kings. Our prophets kept coming to tell us, hey, you're walking in wickedness. We kept killing them. The prophets, we didn't want to hear about it. Now we're in exile. You're the one, you know, we want you to hear us in exile. We're slaves in our own land. Foreign princes or kings are benefiting from, from our land. We want you to hear us. So here's what we're doing. We're going to keep all the law. We're going to keep it. Keep it all. We're going to do what you have commanded us to do. Um, it's a covenant renewal ceremony on their part. Now, notice, notice the law that is told they're going to keep. Verse 30. I want you to notice these two laws that come up really quickly. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What will they not do? Intermarry with foreign women, okay? And if the peoples of the land the peoples, the foreign peoples, bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So what else are they going to do? We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're not going to buy and sell with foreigners, etc., on the Sabbath. We're going to keep the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year every seventh year, right? Go on. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's house, houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruit of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of the herds of our herds and of our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithe from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, and the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So they will keep, they will not intermarry with foreign women. They will keep the Sabbath and they will do what else? They will maintain the house of worship. The chambers, all that belongs there, their tithes that pay the bills. You guys following this so far? We will do all of this. Maintain the house of worship, not marry foreign women, and not violate the Sabbath by, you know, exchanging goods, okay? Um, and so then they start to bring people in to live in the city. Priests, if you look at chapter 11, now they're going to have them live in Jerusalem. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. So verse 3, these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. Um, you're going to have an emphasis in verse 4 on certain sons of Judah. But then as you go on, verse 10 of the priests, verse 15 of the Levites, verse 19, the gatekeepers. 
verse 22, the overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem. Okay, what are you noticing about the emphasis again? Of the people living in Jerusalem, what's the emphasis? Yeah, the service of the temple or worship, okay? Now, um, they're going to have the villages outside of Jerusalem. Um, then in chapter 12, verse 1, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. You have the chiefs of the priests, the Levites, etc., and on you go. At verse 27 of chapter 12, they dedicate the wall. They have a dedication of the wall of Jerusalem that they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singings, with cymbals, harps, and lyres or lyres. And then go to verse 43 of chapter 12. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. Women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Okay, so um, notice what, are, what is, everything's going really well, isn't it? It's going swimmingly, okay? We've made this, we made this covenant. We, we recognize how good you've been to us and gracious you've been to us besides, in, in spite of all of our sin, all through history, from the time we fell until now. As our creator and preserver, you have been our redeemer. You've been kind to us. We've been wicked. We're making a firm covenant with you this day. We're making an oath. We will keep your law. We will not marry with foreign women. We will not violate the Sabbath. We will keep the house of God by bringing our tithes and keeping it up properly. We're going to dedicate the wall to you. We're going to move our proper number of leaders and other folks into the city to live there. We're going to take care of them and we're going to offer great sacrifices. And what are we all doing? We're all rejoicing because like we've done it. You guys following? We've made, we've renewed the covenant of God and we've made good on our word, if you will. Okay, look at verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law of the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and, and his sons Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. What songs are they talking about? David and Asaph? The Psalms, the, the Psalms of the Psalters. So they're singing the Psalms and they're worshiping and they're guarding the storehouses and they're doing, and all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers and they set apart that which was for the Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So we're doing what we're supposed to do. Okay, isn't it all grand? Now notice how quickly they descend into wickedness. Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13. It's like, okay, they get it. Mm -mm. Nehemiah 13 comes along. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Why, these are wicked pagans, okay? For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. You guys remember Numbers 22, 23, 24. Yet our God turned the curse into blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now that sounds like, my gosh, they just keep nailing it. They're doing exactly what the Lord wants. Then comes verse four. Now before this, actually. So the sin's already in the camp. You ready? Now before this, Eliashab the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to, the, to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and con the contribution for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, wh why is he so angry about this? Tobiah is told before I'm born, and it's actually, if I remember correctly, one of the agitators trying to prevent him from building 
Yes, correct. If you remember earlier in Nehemiah, Tobiah is a wicked man opposed to Israel. You guys remember that? Huh? He is, um, Tobiah is an Ammonite. If you look at Nehemiah 2, verse 9, really quickly. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. <coughs> now the king had sent me with, the said with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and what? Tobiah the Ammonite servants heard, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So notice he set up an apartment for an Ammonite in the house of God. You, you, guys, you guys, I mean, the, the, I, 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 I hope you recognize like, what a mess, what a mess. All right, so he discovers it, verse eight, and I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Why, this is, this is um, reminiscent of what you're gonna see Jesus do later, isn't it, in the cleansing the temple in some sense? Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back these there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out, you're, <laughs> you're like, oh no. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. What does that mean the people aren't doing? They're not bringing in their tithe. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is, this, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, um, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zucker, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, uh, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In other words, you know, he's like, the people are wicked. Don't forget me. I was doing, I was honoring, you know, notice what he goes on to say. Verse 15, in those days, oh no, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyranians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began, began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before, if this wasn't here, you're gonna read insult to injury. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. Like they're kind of like, we know what's coming, right? Do you understand? The, mer the foreign merchants are really convinced Israel's going to violate the Sabbath again. So they're like, all right, you're going to lock us out. We're just going to hang out out here for right now. I'm just going to wait. <laughs> all right, so now watch what happens. But I warned them, verse 21, and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Okay. <laughs> From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So you notice, remember in the covenant-making ceremony, we're, we, we are, we are, we are going to keep the house of God the way it's, and we're going to give our tithes, building in a, and 
We're gonna, not going to let any Ammonites in there. We're going to build an apartment for an Ammonite inside the temple, and we're going to stop giving our tithes. We're going to act quickly. We're going to keep the Sabbath. No, we're going to tread the wine press because we need liquor on the Sabbath. We need that. So we're going to tread wine, the wine press on the Sabbath. We're going to bring in the grain. We're going to buy and sell with the pagans. Okay, you guys understand the problem? Now, if that wasn't bad enough, what was the other thing they were not going to do? Intermarry. They were not going to intermarry foreign women. All right, verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> Things pastors cannot do any longer. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, even him, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Okay. <sighs> It's a relentless problem, isn't it? It's a relentless problem. Um, if Ezra is a second Moses, this is a quote I thought from Stephen Dempster that was helpful in his book, Dominion and Dynasty. If Ezra is a second Moses, he, like the first Moses, has not produced and cannot produce a change in the heart of the people. That awaits some future day. The exile continues even though Israel is in the land. That's what you learn in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. The exile continues, even though Israel's in the land. Um, they, they, um, Russell said, I'm not sure who he got it from, but any time we say anything good, we got it from somebody else. Russell made the, has made, made the comment in my grace group over and over again as we went through Egypt, I mean through, through Exodus, and then in Numbers, he just said, you know, the first part of the first 14 chapters of Exodus, God is getting Israel out of Egypt. In the rest of the Pentateuch, he's trying to get Egypt out of Israel, right? And I think, I think that's right. You can take the people out of Babylon, but you can't seem to get Babylon out of the people, right, in the exile. There's only one who can come and change the heart. There's only one. All the rest of the guys can do this external kind of saving. Only one can change the heart. And so you're waiting for him. You're just left waiting for him. Right? He's the one who can do it. All right, questions? Observations are fine, too. Oh yeah, they. Lack of passing on, <coughs> and, and it made me think about the big emphasis that the uh, Puritans had on uh, catechizing your children, and the fact they would come around to your house and and you know ask that do you come in my house and ask what homework I did. Yep, yep. Quizzing on as catechism, not I'm saying you're asking him to quote every one, but asking him questions that would mm -hmm. reveal whether or not he has much understanding of. Yep. Um, like, like it's, yeah, there's all these things that they're doing, but it comes back down to passing on what we believe in not. Yeah, no, I think that's, 
I think that's fundamentally the case throughout the Old Testament as you see whenever the, whenever the people of Israel bring the law back and the truth back and they start teaching their, their children the covenant and the law keeping, you have this kind of period of revival. You guys notice that? Josiah's revival, for example, et cetera, et cetera. You, you have this kind of period of revival. You're supposed to pass it on to their kids, right? They're supposed to. They don't. They often don't. You can see the wickedness. By the way, you see it in Moses. Why is Moses almost struck dead before he goes to Egypt to take the people out? His children aren't circumcised. He's, not, he's failed to believe the covenant. What's the problem with the second generation of Israel when they want to go into the... They've gone across the Red Sea, but they can't go take on the wicked peoples. Joshua chapter 5, until what happens? They're circumcised because the first generation didn't circumcise them. Right? They just didn't believe the covenant promises. They were disobedient, so they fell in the wilderness. And this is the constant problem, if you will, is the is the failure to pass down. With that said, with that said, even as you pass down, without the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the work of the Christ, you're, you're just, you know, you're talking to, I hate to say that, to, to dead hearts, right? And so that's, those two things together matter. But they are necessary together. Well, yep. That's exactly right. So these are the means of grace. If you withhold those means, your children aren't going to get saved. They're not. They're not going to know their faith. This is why, unless some other preacher comes along later because you failed to do your job, um, right? That which does happen. Yes, sir? Yeah, he is. Absolutely. No, and if you go to Second Corinthians, it deals with that directly. Sometimes, um, you're an aroma. He, he, via the minister, is an aroma of life to some, an aroma of death to others. Right. So even when the Spirit's instructing them, it's both saving and condemning, saving of the people who repent and condemning of those who do not. Right. And I think I think that's exactly right, Josh. The, the Holy Spirit is actively involved through the whole of the Old Testament. Um, that's why some, anybody who does believe does believe, right? Anybody who does obey does obey because of the work of the Spirit. Uh, there's no other way to believe and obey but other than the Holy Spirit gives you life. Yeah, he doesn't come till Pentecost or something, which is a misunderstanding of a lot of biblical... I mean, he's already in Genesis 1-2. We don't have to wait till Pentecost for him. So th I, I do think that's important to keep in mind. But yeah, I, I think it's important that we understand that. The Lord has given us, um, if you will, his word, his covenant, and he's told us, here are the means to pass it on to the next generation. T teach it to your children. Here's how this keeps going down, right? Teach it to your children. Pass this covenant, if you will, to your kids. Don't just keep it for yourself, right? And so we do have this kind of constant focus um, throughout Scripture. And what are pastors or priests or in the Old Testament, but pastors supposed to do in the New? Keep preaching this word. You know, you're teaching this covenant document. You're passing it on to the people. Um, that, that those are, we call, we refer to the means of grace. God has an end. You're saved and sanctified. And he has a means to that end. You see, the, um, the means to that end is you hear about the saving work of the Christ. You hear about the word of God. Um, now, how are you hearing about that? First from your parents. First from your parents. That's clear, right? Not just in the Old Testament. That's clear in the New. Ephesians chapter 6, right? Parents, discipline your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is to fondly cherish them, Calvin says, Fondly cherish them is what that word means. To fondly cherish them in the um, paideia, which is something more than just instruction. The next thing is instruction. Instruction of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. But the paideia is a kind of enculturation. You're not just passing on to them words. You're passing on to them an entire Christian culture. You guys know where the word cult culture comes from? Cultus or worship. Um, you're passing on to them a whole way of life that is directed toward the worship of God. That's what I think Christians miss today. I think they think of catechism, for example. 
Um, and this, this is true, I think, in the Old Testament as well. Even if we catechize them, we don't pass on to them more than that. We just give them the information. It's not walking with the Lord with them, right? And with his people with them. It's just, here's some information. Uh, sadly, in our day, I don't think the kids are getting information or culture. They're getting pop culture and, and they're getting usually children's ministries and youth pastors who don't teach them the word faithfully, don't catechize them. So they're not getting either. And their parents don't do anything, right? So um, they just turn them over to the church, hope that the church does it for them, which is a real problem. And then, you know, most of the week, turn them over to the government, to, to Gavin Newsom to be educated. I mean, let's face it, that's what we're doing. So, and we wonder why the church is in trouble, you know? you don't educate them at home other than let them watch TV and look at devices and you don't teach them the faith and you don't live a godly example in front of them and your church isn't really teaching it much and to them and then all week long they're learning from they're, they're being catechized by Gavin Newsom which don't you call it what it is it's catechism it is an instruction in the faith whatever that faith is right and then you wonder how come they're not walking with the Lord well listen they might still walk with the Lord because God is gracious. I grew up in a completely pagan home in a pagan school system. The Lord saved me, right? They might still walk with the Lord because the Lord's gracious. But um, in the main, we've not given them the means by which they, that the Lord uses to save them when we do that. So we don't want to withhold the means. All right. Um, so we're supposed to pick up in Chronicles. I need to look. I will email you as to whether or not that is happening for sure, because I, I need to map out the dates and make sure it can actually be done on Fridays. Um, my radius schedule this semester has been difficult, sorry. Um, but we're supposed to pick up Chronicles, so if I can, if I can see that I can reasonably get it done um, in a few dates in November and December, it just won't be as consistent, because where are we coming in next Friday, is fine. Does anybody care about Veterans Day that much as far as coming on Veterans Day? Y'all okay to come on Veterans Day? Is that Veterans Day? It's always the 11th. So the 4th, the 11th, the 18th um, can all largely work. The 2nd probably will not, but the 9th could of December. So... Um, the reason I say the 2nd of December probably will not is I think if Becky has her way, we're doing a Providence breakfast for our supporters that morning early, so we'd, I'll have to be there. So, um, all right. I'll, I'll, let it, I'll, put, I'll see if I can put together Chronicles in that period, because what I don't want to do is get like partway into Chronicles and then say, all right, see you in January for the rest of it, and just totally disconnect it. So, so let me see if I can do it or not. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the kindness you've shown us in your word, the privilege that we have um, to walk with you. We recognize that you are the creator and the preserver of all things, that you have covenanted to save us in the face of our sin, that you have been gracious and merciful, though we have often been stiff-necked and disobedient. You have continually shown us grace upon grace. We pray that we would walk with you knowing that you have redeemed us in your Son, and that the obligations you pl place upon us are blessings to us, that we would be thankful for the privilege of knowing you and walking with you in Jesus' name. Amen.